Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have of getting together again today to consider more issues that are relevant to our lives as Christians. Bless us, Lord, as we dig into your, your holy word. Bless us as we consider how these issues impact our lives, but more importantly, how they witness to others as to who our Lord and Master is. Father, again, we want to pray for Dr. Kish and his family during this time. Bless his mother-in-law. Guide and direct the doctors and the nurses. Keep us close to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, how many of you have heard of a man by the name of Steve Irwin? I thought some hands might go up. Steve Irwin was that uh, famous uh, Australian um, outdoors guy, uh, popular on television. He was known as the Crocodile Hunter. Uh, some of you might be remembering about him now. And uh, uh, two years ago, he was at the Bat Reef uh, of Australia, shooting a segment for a series on his, for his television show called The Ocean's Deadliest. And he swam close to one of those deadly animals, a stingray. He was swimming over. He was illustrating how dangerous and how deadly animals can be. Unfortunately, he illustrated it too closely. Um, he came on top of the stingray, and the stingray's barb went up into his chest, put a hole in his heart. And within minutes, Steve Irwin was dead. Anybody, everybody remember that story now? It's coming back to more of you. Well-known Steve, uh, Steve Irwin, highly popular guy. And so I thought I would start with that story because in a certain sense, Christians, we as Adventists, are surrounded by deadly animals, <laughs> if you please. The deadly animal I would like to suggest is a thing called culture. A few years ago, in the, uh, this is the year 2003, there was a big uh, section in the Chicago Tribune which had culture versus faith. I have it right here, November 2003, November 30, 2003, five years ago. And there was a big uh, issue It says, American faith has met American culture according to Alan Wolf, And then he ends up and says, guess what? American culture has triumphed. Interesting. American culture has triumphed. And he's one of the political scientists who believes that uh, the, the impact of culture on faith has had a devastating effect. And so what I wanted to do today is consider uh, some major issues that relate to how culture impacts our lives. Now, I know some people will say, oh, this is legalistic. And by the way, yes, when I was growing up, teenage years and older, I, I, I struggled with some of these issues. So. I'll admit that. In fact, a <laughs> little short story about myself. Uh, you might, how many of you remember or have seen pictures of the 70s? In fact, nowadays there's a little bit of a comeback, and my hair gets pretty curly when it gets long, and guess what I had? Anybody want to guess? Afro. You're exactly right. I had an afro, and I was studying theology. <laughs> my hair was getting longer and longer, and I uh, went to a camp meeting one day, and when I came back from camp meeting, I had heard news the president wanted to see me of the college. So guess what I did? I quickly went to my room and I flattened my afro as much as possible and I did everything to, to get it as... I didn't cut my hair. I didn't want it. <laughs> but when I showed up in the president's office, he said, oh, you're looking good. He didn't realize I'd just simply gotten rid of the afro without cutting it. I did not want to cut my hair because, you know, I wanted to look like everybody else. I understand the issue. I was there myself and, and I, I just knew why the president wanted to see me. But I managed to fool him. But guess who I didn't fool? Myself and I didn't fool God. 
I did manage to fool the president. He was happy when he saw me. Little did he know. With a little, within 10 minutes, I could probably get my afro back. So I understand the issue of the so-called small things. But open your Bibles. I want to give you uh, a few passages of Scripture to reflect on right now, right here. Because the question is, is this legalism? Is it nitpicking? Is it judgmentalism? Are we just uh, behind the times? Are we the Amish of the world? (laughs) I'm using the term, you know what I mean by that. Uh, Back from the 17th, 18th centuries. Let's look at a half a dozen or so uh, passages. uh, Maybe four right now to begin with. We'll go into some others. And let's consider what the Bible says tells us. Firstly, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. I want to share with you an important biblical principle right here. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. It's a well-known one. Some of you could probably say this by memory. And again, I'm using the New King James Version as we look, as we spend time in the Word here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Well-known passage written by inspiration by the Apostle Paul, and he says what? Uh, Verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or what? Whatever you do, whatsoever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. All, everything. Mm, so that uh, impacts me with my back then afro. Yes, it, was that to God's glory? Why did I have it? That's the big question. Go with me now to Solomon, the Song of Solomon. That little book that comes right before the big book of Isaiah. Song of Solomon. Because you see, sometimes we say, oh, these are just little things. They are not important. Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 15. There's a principle I want to share with you that comes directly out of that passage. Then we'll go to the New Testament and look at the words of none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. And we're getting just the basic principle here. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. It's interesting. It doesn't say the big foxes. Here it talks about the little foxes who spoil the vines. Sometimes we might say, oh, it's just a little thing. So let's go to the book of Luke, the words of Jesus now. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Are little things important according to Jesus? Here was the passage from Song of Solomon. Now we're going to the New Testament, the book of Luke, and let's see the emphasis that our Savior places on this. When He was on this earth, Jesus made a point of this issue of what is large and what is small. Is there any connection between the two? Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Notice the words of Christ. He who is faithful in that which is what? least in that which is little, is faithful also in much. Okay, let's continue. And he who is unjust in, w- in what is least is unjust also in much. So the big question is, in God's sight, are there really little things? Hmm, interesting question. So reflect on that for a moment. Is there anything that is inconsequential in the concept of how we live our lives before God? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. One more verse we'll look at right here as we dig into our topic. The title for this topic is Majoring in Minors? Question mark. That's what we called it. Are we majoring in minors or... Are these the little foxes that spoil the vine? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body 
is the temple, the New King James correctly points out, the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Stop there. Have you ever heard yourself even say, it's my body, I can do whatever I want with it? <laughs> Did you hear what the Bible says? Is that your body? No, you're not your own. So forget that. It's my body. I can do whatever I want. You are not your own. Why? Verse 20 is the key. Back to Jesus Christ. I always want to make sure we are Christ-centered. For you were bought at a price. The price of Christ's death on the cross. You were bought at a price. Therefore, result, because you are bought at a price, you're a Christian, therefore do what? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which belong to God. So we are called upon there, very important, because of the bottom line factor, we belong to God, therefore we need to be willing to glorify God in our our bodies. Glorify God in our bodies because we belong to Him. Now I'm aware, folks, that there are some. In fact, somebody I know personally, I won't mention his name, let's call him Don. That's just a, a, a name I come up with. Let's call him Don. Don was a leader of an Adventist educational institution. I know the institution well. I've been there. Well, he decided, as the leader of the institution, the president, we must, be, we must keep up with the times. Let's be more open and accepting. Uh, let's, let's not be so, such a stickler on some of these minor issues, such as church standards, the wearing of ornamental jewelry and colorful cosmetics. Guess what happened to that school? Thrived? What do you think happened? Went down, went down went down in all kinds of areas. Instead of being more accepting and loving and bringing more in, they went downhill and downhill. In fact, an Adventist social scientist predicts it seems almost certain that the prohibition of ornamental jewelry will not hold in the near future of the church. Uh, he doesn't believe this will hold our standard on uh, makeup and jewelry and so forth, specifically jewelry he's talking about right here. And another gentleman in another book said, if we continue taking a hard line, unbending stand regarding what he calls less morally defined issues such as jewelry, we can expect to continue seeing them, that's the young people, you leave our church, many of them never to return. So he said, let's be more loving, let's be more accepting, let's not be so judgmental, let's be more accommodating. Here's the question. Let's be open-minded, okay? Let's look at other churches that had high standards, and let's see what happened to them when they became more loving and less judgmental. Now, two scientists did a study, two social scientists did a study. Roger, uh, uh, what their names were, Fink and Stark. I actually have their names. I've got to find their names right here. They went and did a study, and they published it at the University of uh, Cal uh, California, San Francisco, uh, I believe it was. They published their findings in this book. The book was called Acts of Faith. That's the name of the book. Acts of Faith by Rodney Stark and Roger Fink, F-I-N-K-E. They published a book, University of California Press. Actually, this was Berkeley, Berkeley, California. These were not pr promoting Christianity. They just said, let's look at these churches that became more tolerating, more loving. What happened? Did they have phenomenal church growth? 
Listen to what happened now. Now, a friend of mine, Edwin Hernandez, who is a soci an Adventist sociologist, he summarized it in this one paragraph. So let me share with you the summary. You know, you don't have to read the whole book, by the way. When you have reliable friends, they can help to summarize things for you. So Edwin Hernandez has summarized it, and I've gone to the library, and I photocopied the actual pages that, uh, that tie in with this. This is what Hernandez summarized and said. Recent research shows that as mainline denominations and we'll talk about which ones they are, relax their traditional observance of the Sunday Sabbath. Remember, they keep Sunday. And other time-consuming practices, members were deprived of the benefits of belonging to such a religion, the distinctive sense of identity and communal belonging. This situation led to a continuing precipitous pattern of membership decline. Listen to the denominations now. Between 1960 and 1990, over 30 years, they study these groups over 30 years so you can get the idea of the trends. Don't look at it for one year, but look at the long term, right? That's the best way. They did this for decades. They studied these denominations over a 30-year period. Are you ready for it? The following denominations, the United, in the United States, United Methodists, they had a 39% membership loss. Presbyterians, 34% down. United Church of Christ, 48% down. Episcopalians, by the way, this is the church in the United States that, uh, quote-unquote, have this uh, uh, practicing homosexual as a bishop. The Episcopalians, they lost 46% of their members. And the American Baptists, 50%. What happened? As these churches became more accommodating, they lost more than 40% on average. Their members went downhill. People didn't want to come to church anymore. Why? Guess why? They were becoming just like the world. Now, what's fascinating is the opposite. In 1978, you might recall, some of you were alive back then, most of you might not remember it, but you've read about it, Pope John Paul became the new leader of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, you're aware of Pope John Paul. He just died, what, uh, three years ago, right? And what they did is they studied Pope John Paul when he became the leader of the Catholic Church. By the way, I'm not promoting Catholicism or attacking these other churches. I'm simply letting you know what happened in the churches. When Pope John Paul said, let's get serious about what we believe. No to abortion, no to homosexuality, and, and they stood for what they believed. What do you think happened to the Catholic Church worldwide? Membership drop off, they remained the same. Guess what happened globally? They, they calculated during the 25 years, they started in 1978, they went up to 2003. Now, Pope John Paul, Paul died in 2005. But they looked at his first 25 years, two years before he died. They found out because of his solid stand on church practices, moral issues, lifestyle issues, guess what happened? The church, the Catholic church, grew by more than 40% because they stood for something. You've heard the statement? If you stand for nothing, you fall for what? Anything. For anything. You're absolutely right. Okay. So, here's the question. What will happen to the Adventist church if we, if we become more loving? Will we have a more vibrant faith? Will we, will we do better? Dr. Hernandez says this. The results will be devastating. Now, you know what's fascinating? Sometimes it's, it's unique. I can't understand it. But we, we, as Adventists, invited a Methodist to come to one of our institutions to come and talk to us about church growth. Dean Kelly came along. Now, he wrote a book, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. And when Dean Kelly came along, this is what he said. Okay, I'll read you. He says, it's a little ironic. I think that someone from one of the declining churches 
should come to talk about church growth to one to, to a body that is growing at a very significant, precisely consistent rates. What am I doing talking to you guys, Adventists? Your church is growing. <laughs> but then he did say this, tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of irony. I'm quoting now. He says, if Adventists want to stop growing and begin declining like everyone else, all they have to do is emphasize that abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine isn't essential to salvation. Decide that vegetarianism isn't actually all that important. And foot washing, ha, it's a little tacky. Recognize that tithing, like the requirements already mentioned, can be a form of righteousness by works. And, Dean Kelly says, I almost am unable to mention this, introduce the idea that one can worship as well on Sunday as on Saturday. You want to you collapse? Give up your standards. This is a Methodist telling Adventists how to collapse. <laughs> Give up your standards. If you want to, let me say, Dean Kelly was saying, if you want your church to die, give up your standards just like the rest of us. By the way, Ellen White has some interesting counsel. She says, we are to strive for unity, but not on the low level of conformity to worldly policy. That's in a book called Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 2, page, page uh, 559. Then in a book called Counsels to Writers and Editors, page 35, she says, no true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. So yeah, are we majoring minors or are we serious about upholding the standards that God has blessed this church with? Yeah, I know there are some who say, oh, but Dr. Dupre, uh, there's nothing in the Bible really. We haven't studied our Bibles carefully. In fact, I know of an Adventist pastor, by the way, who began to argue that there's nothing really in the Bible against jewelry. Make a long story short, he's no longer an Adventist. He left and he took much of his congregation with him. And I just met one of the ladies who now is a member of his church. I won't mention the name of the church, but he's a, she's a member. But what is it? He worked himself out because he didn't believe anymore. Now, I'm going to sh recommend a book every now and then. The only book that I recommend without a doubt, 100%, is the Bible. And obviously the writings of Ellen White because they were inspired by God. So whenever I recommend a book, I always recommend it saying, this was written by human beings but helps you to get deeper into the Word. Here's a book written by a human being, Dr. Angel Rodriguez, called Jewelry in the Bible. He did a careful study of jewelry from Genesis all the way through Revelation. He's the director of the Biblical Research Institute of the General Conference. And he did a careful study. Let me ju just jump to the end, page 110, 111. Dr. Rodriguez says this after his careful study of the whole issue of uh, jewelry. In this, we're talking about the issue of standards, dress standards. Dr. Rodriguez says, the Adventist standard on jewelry is supported by contextual analysis of the biblical texts, the Christian use of these passages to, to develop a standard on jewelry, and by fundamental religious, theological, and pragmatic reasons. Too much is at stake for the church to relax or reject the expression of God's will for His people in this area. What we need is a clear understanding on the part of pastors, teachers, and church leaders of this standard to make it relevant to our church members around the world. Our position is solidly Bible-based. As we look, when we go deeply into the scriptures, we will find that out. By the way, how many of you, uh, who are, whether you're from the United States or not, watched some of the proceedings 
during the races between the Democrats and the Republicans. I watched and I listened. Yes, I stayed up late at night because I, I, at that point, I was still living in California. Uh, we've moved now to Michigan, so it was late that night, but I watched the speeches of the candidates as they came up that the Republican convention and the Democratic convention. And then I watched as their families walked into the platform. Who of you watched that? Let me see the hands. Raise your hands quickly high. It was only about a half of you. For the rest of you, let me tell you, when I looked at that, as a Bible teacher, as a pastor, as an ethicist, one who teaches the difference between right and wrong according to scripture, I noticed the way that not just husbands and wives, both for the president-elect for the Republican uh, Party and the vice president who was then nominated, as well as for the Democratic Party, I noticed that the children I looked carefully. I didn't see any of the guys walking on stage with their pants way down here. I, I said, this is interesting. They were all dressed like we used to see people go to church 30 years ago. Are, are you with me? Look, think back. Go back and look at pictures. For no matter which side, whether it was Democratic or Republican, all of the kids were dressed. None, none of the young ladies came with low-cut dresses. None. None of them had slits all the way up here. Okay? None of them. None of them had their midriff showing. None of the guys walked in with two earrings or with, or with necklaces. It is amazing when I looked at them, it's like, you're kidding. These look almost like Seventh-day Adventist young men and women. <laughs> that was fascinating. Interesting. Go with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's spend a few moments there in the Word and get some principles here for us. And then I'm going to give you three major principles. And uh, I want to share with you a little more to challenge you. Remember what we said? These sessions are going to provide some fundamental groundwork so that you can go home and dig further. You can see whether these things are so. Check them out for yourself. We'll go now to 1 Peter, uh, Peter chapter 2, and we're going to provide some basic principle as we dig deeper. Again, I recommend Dr. Uh, Rodriguez's book, um, Jewelry in the Bible. Oh, yeah, the subtitle is what you always wanted to know but were afraid to ask. I love that subtitle, huh? 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9 and verse 10. Here the foundation is laid, 1 Peter 2. Now, as we started today, you remember we said, in God's economy, Jesus says, he who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. So there are no inconsequential things, really. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I'm reading from the New King James Version. I'm glad you brought your Bibles with you, the sword of the Spirit. Let's go there and look at those verses as we begin digging a little deeper. Now notice what Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. What does the King James say? His peculiar. Now, now, when I was growing up in South Africa, the word peculiar, we understood from the British meaning, and by the way, the word comes from almost four centuries ago or more. Peculiar nowadays means what? What does it mean now? Odd. Weird. But actually in South Africa, with a British background, they would say that trait of character is peculiar to him. That's what we, how we used it. Peculiar, that's his own trait. That's why in the modern Bible it says his own special people. By the way, peculiar does not mean weird or odd. 
it means his own special people. Hence, I use the New King James. Because when people say, we must be a peculiar people, say, I don't want to be an oddball. The Bible's not talking about being oddballs, okay? The Bible is saying we must act like we are God's own special people. You believe that? Yes, so let's go, let's go deeper. Okay, you must be his own special people. Why? Here's the reason that you may proclaim, declare his, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, he called us out of the world. Remember at the beginning I told you, I, and yes, when I was growing up, I wanted to have this huge afro. Why? So I could look more like Jesus? Not at all. The reason was I wanted to look like uh, my heroes. Sorry, folks, Jimi Hendrix and others of that nature. You might remember having heard of him, okay? But the thing is, these were, without me necessarily realizing it, these were some of the people I looked up to. Ah, but we've been called out of darkness. Let's go on. Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, you're just a pilgrim. I'm, I'm a wayfaring pilgrim. I'm on my way to heaven. You know that. As pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which what? Which war against the soul. Having your conduct, verse 12 is key, having your conduct, notice the word, your what? Your conduct, how you behave. I'm going to share you a story about a young lady. Don't let me forget. Let's call her name, give her name Brenda, okay? Remind me to tell you about Brenda here in a moment. Um, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, if the Gentiles say, ah, you're an, they're evildoers, these Christians, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what's the purpose? I love the way uh, another translation has put this. So I want to go to listen to this translation here. The New International says, your good conduct in Christ. Okay, uh, that's the way it's put here. Your good behavior in Christ, sorry. Your good behavior in Christ. The New English translation called the Net Bible states that others will, quote, see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Isn't that exciting? They'll see what the good life you live. Why? Because you belong to Christ. I was standing in the airport at Heathrow, Heathrow, London. I'll never forget, I was transferring, I believe, coming in from Turkey, and I was standing in line to go and ask a question, and about five people ahead of me, I observed a young lady, and I just saw from behind, Okay? And, and I noticed the way she was talking with the person behind the, behind the glass, just uh, having a conversation. And the manner and everything she was doing was in such a, a, a lively, vibrant way, and also very kind as the line, you know, and I listened, I tried to get, you know, you're not supposed to eavesdrop, but, but I was curious. Because the way she was interacting caught my attention. And then I looked a little more carefully, and she had no earrings on. And I looked a little more carefully, and she didn't have all red or blue or purple, what color, what the in color was back then, black lips or anything. And I looked, I thought, wow. And I noticed how she was dressed. She had a slacks on, but it wasn't one of those super tight ones that, that you know, what do they do? They, you shrink wrap. Isn't that what the term is? You, the, somehow, you get shrink wrapped into your clothes. She didn't have that. It caught my interest. I, I was just thinking, and by the, I don't speak to strangers, by the way. My parents taught me the right way. Don't, you know. But, but I couldn't keep my mouth shut. So when she was done, she walked by. I was, by that time, quite hopefully convinced that she was, guess what? 
an Adventist, a Seventh-day Adventist, because she looked like one, she acted like one, she was pleasant. By the way, she was not what we call a beautiful person, according to uh, People magazine, or the, she was not, quote-unquote, physically attractive. Okay, she was also one of the so-called larger women, if you know what I mean. That's the term that's used nowadays, the politically correct language. But so she wasn't quote unquote the, the, the typical model who walks down the runway, but there was something that came from her that was just very attractive. So as she walked by, I thought, oh, I hope she's an Adventist, because this is the type of person who attracts people to, the, to, to something about her, even though she didn't have the physical beauty. And I couldn't help. I said, excuse me, <laughs> could you tell me, what is your religion? And I waited with bated breath, hoping she would say, oh, I'm an Adventist. You know, no, Seventh-day Adventist? She said, oh, I am a Baha'i. A what? Baha'i. How many of you have heard of the Baha'is? About a half of you. The Baha'is, ironically, were a group whose church started, guess when? According to the Baha'is, their church started in 1844. Fascinating. They don't believe, they believe that all truth is relative. They have some other beliefs, very interesting, but they started at the same time we are. And here was this young woman who looked and acted like somebody who was actually attracting people to Jesus Christ. Now, they don't really believe that. But as I think of that, I said, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if when people watched our interactions, mine, yours, they would say, I've got to find out what faith that person has. This vibrant, kind way of talking, this wonderful example of simple joyful life. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people came to us and said, by the way, what is your religion? After they've watched us, and we could say, oh, I'm a Christian who loves Jesus Christ, and I belong to the Seventh-day Adventist faith. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Just by watching us, that's what the Bible says. By your conduct, they will be attracted to Jesus Christ. Let's move on. I'm going to give you three principles right here, three vital, basic, biblical principles for you to consider as we look deeper into this important matter. Okay. Number one, principle modesty. Write this one down. We've given you some introductory issues here, but I want to capture it. We've got 25 minutes to finish up here. Modesty. When you consider how you should dress, what you should do, think of the principle of modesty. And we'll give you a Bible verse to put with that. It's a well-known verse. We're looking just at the principle. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, yes, it's talking to women, but it applies to men equally. It's, uh, it's the principle of modesty. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. No extremes, folks. Propriety and moderation. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but with, which is proper for women professing godliness, but with good works with good works. How must you dress, dress yourself with good works? So the, the principle of modesty is number one. Now, I'm going to actually stop here for a moment because, you know, it's fascinating uh, when you look at this whole issue of modesty. Oh, I've got to tell you, this is kind of almost funny. Um, the magazine called Entertainment. Have you heard of Entertainment? Okay. Entertainment, November last year, had a picture here of uh, a lot of women, okay, and as many of you know, the style amongst women, oh, men, I'm coming to you. You're not going to get off the cuff on this one. Hold on. But the style amongst women has been to have tight clothing, hip huggers. Isn't that the right term they use? You know what I'm talking about? What do they call this? Okay. Uh-huh. Listen to this. This is entertainment. 
they're not a Christian magazine, but they say, I'm quoting them, after years of waistlines so low, you heard that? Waist, by the way, when, just wait till somebody bends down, you're in trouble, okay? Now you know what I'm talking about. After years of waistlines so low that they verged on pornographic. Entertainment, weekly, not professing to be Christian. They tell you that the waistlines of the women were verging on the pornographic. And yet, sadly, some, even Christians, have fallen for this falling waistline. After years of waistlines so low they verged on the pornographic, fashion has turned to the other extreme, the high-waisted pant. And so now they're going the other extreme. Fashion goes to extremes. That's what happens. That's how they keep their business going. That's how they keep making money. And people get caught in this silly thing, following fashion. Modesty. So principle number one is modesty. Oh yes, gentlemen, we got to talk to you a little bit here. Ah, this one I found almost interesting, almost funny, except that it's sad. This is also last year, 2007, titled, Cities, Cities, Cracking Down on Saggy Pants. Amen. Mm -hmm. Listen to it. In Atlanta, a law has been introduced to ban sagging, and punishment could include small fines or community work. Okay? Uh -huh. Listen to this. What about... Louisiana. In Louisiana, the town council passed an ordinance that carries a fine up to, up to $500 and six months in jail for exposing underwear in public. What do you say? Amen. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said amen. At least a few of you said that. Okay. Similar municipalities and parishes in, in, in Louisiana have enacted similar laws in recent months. Where does this all come from? The irony is, in Louisiana, they'll take the kids, lock them up and put them in jail. But where does saggy pants come from? From the jail. The bear your britches fashion is believed to have started in prison where inmates aren't given belts with their baggy uniforms to prevent themselves from hanging themselves, committing suicide or beating other people. So now they take the guys and throw them back into jail where they can enjoy the kind of fashion they, they want to follow. <laughs> Did you get that? So here we find the men following the prisoners as their models. Sad. Very sad. Um, anyway, uh, there's, there's something, every now and then people send me some good stuff uh, on, on email. I got I said, some friends who keep me updated. Somebody sent me this one. I will share this with, with you for what it's worth. It's called... Uh, um, two concerned grandmothers. And then we get to principle number two. Principle number one, modesty. And the title of this was Teen Poverty in America. And now we can say globally. But in America, it was the two concerned grandmothers here in the United States. We, we just spent several hours observing teenagers hanging out at our local mall. We came to the conclusion that many teenagers in America today are living in poverty. Most young men we observed didn't even own a belt. There was not a one among the whole group. But that wasn't the sad part. Many were wearing their daddy's jeans. Some jeans were so big and baggy, they hung low on the hips, exposing their underwear. I, don't, I know some of you have been ashamed that their daddy was short because his jeans hardly went below their knees. They weren't even their daddy's good jeans, for most had holes ripped in the knees and a dirty look to them. 
it grieved us. In a modern, affluent society like America, there are those who can't afford a decent pair of jeans. I was thinking about asking my church to start a jeans fund drive for poor kids of the mall. Then on Christmas Eve, we could go, to, we could go Christmas caroling and distribute jeans to these poor teenagers. <laughs> but here is the saddest part. It was the girls they were hanging out with that disturbed us most. Never in all our lives have we seen such poverty-stricken girls. These girls had the opposite problem of the guys. They all had to wear their little sister's clothes. <laughs> their jeans were about five sizes too small. I don't know how they could get them on, let alone button them up. Their jeans barely went over their hip bones. Most also had on their little sister's top. It, could, it hardly covered their midsections. Oh, they were trying to hold their heads up with pride, but it was a sad sight to see these almost grown women wearing children's clothes. <laughs> However, it was their underwear that bothered us most. They, like the boys, because of the improper fitting of their clothes, they had their underwear exposed. We had never seen anything like it. It looked like the underwear was held together only by a single piece of string. We know it saddens your heart to receive this report on condition of our American teenagers. While we go to bed every night with closets full of clothes nearby, there are millions of mall girls who barely have enough material to keep it together. We think their poorness is why these two groups gather together at the mall. Boys with their daddies, their short daddies' ripped jeans, and girls wearing their younger sister's clothes. The mall is one place where they can find acceptance. So next time you are at the mall doing your shopping and you pass by some of these poor teenagers, would you say a prayer for them? Need I say more? By the way, it's very interesting. How many of you have heard of Melinda Gates? Okay, about five hands. How many of you have heard of Bill Gates? I expected a lot more. Well, that's Bill Gates' wife, all right? Next time you know, Melinda Gates. Multi-multi-billionaires. And they are doing quite a bit of good in the sense of trying to help societies, education, and so forth. But it's very interesting, Melinda Gates recently was top of the list. 2006, they put her at the top of the list of the 50 women to watch, according to the Wall Street Journal. Well-recognized journal, Melinda Gates, number one of the top 50 women in the world. Okay, listen to this. Melinda Gates tops the list. And then they get to the end. This is what they say about Melinda Gates. Okay, she asks smart questions. She's so humble in her interaction with others. And the last sentence, two sentences of the article about Melinda Gates, top woman to watch. She's modest in dress as well. Did you hear it? This is the secular press. This is not Christian. She's modest in dress as well, wearing a blue work shirt and slacks or long skirts. Why? Last sentence. It's an image crafted to reflect the gravity, the seriousness, the importance of her mission. Did you hear that, guys? Wow! This is the secular world saying that here is a woman who's got a serious mission. What? To educate people and to take care of poor people. And she dresses in accordance with it. How much more should we, who have the most important mission on planet Earth, to warn the world of a coming Savior, how much more shouldn't we dress appropriately? You agree with that? How many of you agree with that? Yes. 
Okay, I want to make sure. Maybe it's the after lunch blues. All right. Principle number two. That was modesty. Let's go into number two here. Distinction. Distinction. Number one is modesty. Number two is distinction. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5. The principle again, we want to draw from this. The principle of distinction. I've been, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, confused my myself when I've looked at some people. Sometimes I thought I knew who they were and they weren't who they were because I thought it was a male, it was a female. Or sometimes I've looked at a female and thought it was a, uh, a male and it was a female. And it's been so confusing, maybe I even confused what I just said. But you know what I'm talking about. You don't know who's who nowadays. But it's interesting here. Now there's a principle that comes from this. A, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment for for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. One of the principles we know that comes from here, by the way, uh, when I grew up, I thought, oh, okay, when I have kids, then girls are never going to wear pants. That's not what it's saying. Look at the principle. Look at the larger context. Look at the whole book of Deuteronomy. Part of it was apparently the issue of homosexuality. That's the background. One of the backgrounds, men dressing as women, women dressing as men. You know what I'm talking about in today's society. They call them drag queens. Is that the right term? Okay. Where men want to dress up as women to attract other men. Okay. So one of the problems was homosexuality. And we know that the Bible talks about it very seriously. We'll deal with that tomorrow in one of my sessions. Also, the other problem was apparently this. And we'll talk about this in our next session. The issue of military in the civil government, there was a military, and they would call them up for service, and some of the guys dressed like women so they wouldn't be called up. <laughs> so we'll talk about the war issue in our very next session. We're going to get into that. What do we do in the issue of military and morality? But we are supposed to have a distinction. That's the issue we're talking about here. So clear distinction between male and female. Principle number three, principle number three, identification with the Lord and not the world. Identification with the Lord and not the world. Go with me now to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 15 and 16. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16. Do not what? Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's one of the problems we all face. We fall in love with the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Is not in him. Is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, notice, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of what? is of the world. So we're called upon to make a clear distinction between following the Lord and following the world. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Go ahead and pull your feet in right now. Guess why? I might step on a few toes. I might step on some toes right now. But folks, my task is to share with you the reality. This was a surprise. Are you aware of this? We're talking about dressing like the world, both male and female. But I want to touch on something very sensitive. Again, I apologize if I'm stepping on your toes. But I have to share the facts. This is scary. By the way, I didn't have the guts. Now I've got the guts. I mean, the, the, the holy boldness, maybe. 
I didn't have the guts of holy bolus to put it in my book. This is a book I did some years ago. I put it in the footnotes. <laughs> I was chicken. Now, I'm, yeah, I'll admit that. Okay. Now I'm speaking. I'm going to speak openly about it, and I'm going to put this by God's grace next time in the text because not everybody reads the footnotes. Let's hit the nail on the head. Did you know that? Some people, I'm quoting my own footnote now. Apparently, there are some who innocently and ignorantly indulge in the use of colorful cosmetics without realizing the sexually seductive nature and thus the moral implications of the use of such makeup. Now, please don't misunderstand me. If you've got a huge birth scar on your face, the purpose of makeup is to make up for that scar so that not every, everybody walks by you and people, in the, when they're driving, they get to the traffic like they wouldn't be distracted by this huge mark in your scar and have an accident. You know, makeup is to make up. Do you get it? It's to make up for the blemish, all right? That's when we, we're not talking about makeup. We're talking about this. Now, listen further. Notice the following statement made by those celebrating in the year 2005, by the way, and you can go to the website. I've got the website right here. It was uh, webzine, W-E-B-Z-I-N-E, simrise, S-Y-M-R-I-S-E, dot com. In 2005, I found this on their website. They were celebrating what they called 80 years of nail polish. 80 years. They were celebrating. And this is what they said on their website. I'm quoting now. This is the secular press. Red nails are seductive. As Cleopatra, you've heard of Cleopatra? Mm -hmm. As Cleopatra, the ultimate trendsetter in Egyptian cosmetics, knew over 2,000 years ago. Red nails are what? Seductive. Why? Ask anybody who knows physiology. When a woman gets sexually aroused, what happens? The blood rushes to the extremities. Red toenails, that's why women wear red toenails. That's why they have red fingernails. This all is to mimic that they are sexually aroused. And men pick up on the signal. We're not dumb. Our physiology reacts to that. This is what they say. Now, okay, and you can read the physiology books. You'll find that, uh, uh, by the way, I had to dig hard to find this. Not everybody wants to advertise these facts. But let me read you one more thing. Whew. You want to hear it or not? What about red lips? Then, too, what about red lips? They, too, are intentionally sexually seductive for they, and I'm quoting this, the, the people who promote red nails, this is what they say, for the red lips, I'm quoting them, mimic the appearance of the vaginal area. The people who promote red nail polish, they maintain this is sexually seductive. Do it. You can get the men in bed with you. They say that. You're kidding. That's right. They're aware of it. And you can go and study on it, and that's what happens. I thought I needed to share this, folks. The devils, the, the people of the world are sometimes more enlightened than the people of the light sometimes, right? We do things we don't even realize. It. So I'm challenging you. By the way, you can put your feet back out now. Okay. Ah. So, by God's grace, let's change. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Go with me there. A couple verses. One verse here. 2 Corinthians 6. Um, and uh, I say, as I said, if I stepped on toes, hopefully this has been a challenge to you or to maybe a, a family member. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Here's the call from God. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. Very strong urging. Um, right? Verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be he what? 
be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So we are called upon to come out. Now, how do we do that? Let me share with you a quick uh, story to illustrate that. I remember I was giving Bible studies to a young lady. She was not a Seventh-day Adventist, obviously, at that point in time. And um, what happened? She showed up for the Bible studies, and she had earrings on. Next week, Bible study, same earrings. Next week, same earrings. And she wasn't poor. But I couldn't help by that time, by the third or fourth week, I had to save her. Let's call her um, uh, Valerie. I said, Valerie, I notice you're wearing the same earrings every week, every time we get together. She said, oh yeah, these are very precious to me. They come from my grandmother. They are an heirloom handed down to me. Oh, okay, interesting. I left it at that. And what did I do? From the beginning of our Bible studies, the one thing I encouraged her to do was read the Bible. I gave her a New Testament. I said, read this every day. Spend your time in the Word. Dig into the Word. Make sure you feed on the Word. Feast on the Bible. That's where your strength comes from. Spend your time in the Word. She showed up for a Bible study again. I couldn't believe it. The, 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 the earrings were not there. I said, uh, Valerie, <laughs> I couldn't help but you, you're not wearing those earrings today. Oh, what happened? <laughs> what happened to the earrings? Your, your precious earrings from your grandmother. You know, did she lose them? What happened? She said this to me. She, she didn't know. Oh, cool, casually. Oh, I happen to be reading the what? The Bible. First Peter chapter 2. And I found out, First Timothy chapter 2. Those two passages, I found out that the woman's adornment must be an inward one, not external. So I took them off. Interesting. Spending her time in the Bible helped her to remove the baubles. I wasn't emphasizing the jewelry. I was emphasizing Jesus by getting her in touch, by spending time in the Word of God. The point I'm making, folks, we don't have to give up our standards. We must just make sure that our emphasis is in the right place. That's how we will bring people to a wonderful knowledge of how to live for the Lord. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've got about five more minutes. I want to wrap up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I've done, dealt with the issue of how we live, how we dress. Obviously, that's the, uh, considered a very important topic. We spend some time in it. But I want to touch on one more thing here as we round off. It's an area that, uh, as a friend of mine, Pastor Steve Chavez, who is associate editor at the Adventist Review magazine, has said he calls, uh, he talks about one of the sins of Adventism. We're going to get to that now. But notice here, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yeah, confession time. Now I'm going to step on my own toes. For the first 27 years of my life, I felt pretty good because I didn't eat any unclean meats. I was a, a, what the American Dietetics Association calls an, a flexitarian. Anybody heard of a flexitarian? Nah, it's not one hand there. It's, it's what we call a non-vegetarian. Flexitarian. It kind of sounds nice. Huh? Uh, it's a, a carnivore, a meat eater, a meat and potatoes guy, or whatever you want to call it. And that, that's what I was for the first 27 years of my life. And then uh, when I turned 27 or so, I switched and I became a lacto-ovo vegetarian. That's a vegetarian who eats uh, uh, dairy products as well. And it's interesting what happened. When up to 27, I struggled to run a mile in under six minutes, okay? I, I couldn't. At college, I tried. Uh, I, I, I couldn't make it one mile in six minutes. I became a lacto-over-vegetarian. That's vegetables and dairy products. And I could run faster, even though I'm older. And when I was 50 years of age, I could run a mile, when I was 50, in five minutes and 41 seconds, which I couldn't do when I was 21. 
I was getting healthier. I said, wow, this is exciting. And then in 2005, Runner's World, to which I subscribe, came out with an article about the 10 heroes of the year for the runners. And I began to read about the guy by the name of Scott Jurek. Scott Jurek, by the way, is incredible. He doesn't run just marathons. You know what a marathon is, right? 26.2 miles, to be specific. Yeah. And uh, so, but Scott Jurek, he doesn't run 26.2 miles. He runs 100-mile races. 100 miles, and they run him through the mountains. And so Scott Jurek won the, the Western States here in California. In Auburn, they run through the Sierras, a 100-mile race nonstop. He won it one year. He won it the next year. He won it the next year, the next, the next, the next. So he won the, the race seven years in a row. I said, what is the guy doing? This is incredible. He was in his 20s, but nobody can beat him. Why can nobody beat the guy? And he's in his 20s. He's getting older, but he still wins. What is it about him? And then two weeks after running the Western States 100-mile race for the seventh time, two weeks later, some of us would still be lying in bed, right, after two weeks? <laughs> two weeks later, he ran the Badwater Ultramarathon. Now, if you think 100 miles is crazy, that's child's play. The Badwater Ultramarathon, let me tell it to you, it starts at Badwater in Death Valley, the lowest place in the continental United States, 282 feet below sea level. They start at the lowest place, and they start the race in the middle of summer, the middle of July, to have the hottest time of the year, because they want to really test to see how strong you are. And then they run from there, and they run up to the entrance to the trails, climbing up to the top of Mount Whitney. It's an uphill race. Guess how long it is? 135 miles in the middle of summer. It gets so hot that the guy's shoes melt on the blacktop. So they run on the white strips so that the shoes won't melt. Scott Jurek had just finished winning the Western States for the seventh year in a row. And then two weeks later, he runs the Badwater Ultramarathon, 135 miles. That's more than five marathons nonstop, uphill, in the heat of summer. And he wins it and sets a brand new world record simultaneously. It's like, whoa, is this guy on steroids? Or is he Elijah imbued by the power of God to run in front of Ahab's chariot? <laughs> Which one is it? Guess what, folks? They finished the article by saying, Scott Jurek is a strict, pure vegan. I said, whoa, awesome. I want to be a great runner. And right there and then I changed my name to Ronald Vegan. <laughs> yeah. And from that time onwards, I have been, by the way, you can, call, you can say Vegan. I, the reason, this is California, where Ronald Reagan was from. So, you know, Ronald Vegan, anyway. But, um, uh, so, uh, my name is Ronald, yes, my full <laughs> legal name. But the reason I, uh, you can say Vegan, 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 or Vegan. The dictionary says four ways, okay? But I became a Vegan from that time, and guess what's happened? I'm giving only God the glory because I call that the Gen 3 nutritional program. Why Gen 3? Genesis chapter 3, right. <laughs> the Gen 3 nutritional program, nuts, fruits, grains, vegetables. Now, yes, you must make sure it's a balanced diet. Don't go to extremes. We're not talking about health deform. We've got to make sure you get a vitamin B12 and all the rest. Please don't misunderstand me. But when I found what Scott Jurek was doing, I said, I'm going to do the same. And guess what happened, folks? Amazing. I ran my first marathon, 26.2 miles, when I was 30 years of age. 30 years of age. I ran my first marathon this year celebrating God's grace in my life, I ran 10 marathons, okay? And, and, guess what? Back then, I compared my time now, when I'm 56, I just turned 57, but at the age of 56, I compared my time with when I ran my first marathon, and guess what? That was 26 years ago. My Boston Marathon time was 25 minutes faster than my first marathon when I was 30. 
I'm not getting slower. Why? God has the best diet for us. God wants us to live as healthily as possible. And I was able to run the Boston Marathon at the age of 56. I'm going to give only God the glory for his Genesis 3 nutritional program or the Daniel 1 program. Okay, whichever one you want to call it. I was able to run Boston fast enough to qualify next year to run with the 18-year-olds. Wow, I love this. Yes, yes, I'll admit I miss my pizza, but you know, I eat pizza now without, without the cheese. I don't want to have all that stuff clogging my system. Why, folks? It's fitness for witness. We want to live as healthily as possible, not so we can get a laurel wreath around on our heads or a, a gold medal around our necks, but we want to live as healthily as possible so we can tell others about Jesus. Isn't that true? Amen. That's why we want to do that. By the way, you know that National Geographic came out with this, and then I want to share with you a short story as we end here. National Geographic, uh, a couple of years ago or so, had this one, uh, November 2005, three years ago, The Secrets of Living Longer, and they focused upon three groups in the world where people live to 100 or more. One in Okinawa, where I was a missionary, one in Sardinia, Italy, and the other third group of people who live to 100 or more are, guess where? Loma Linda, California. And they said these other two groups are dying out. The only group that is not dying out, that's growing, that is more and more people are living to the hundreds, is guess where? Loma Linda, California. So they recognize here in National Geographic that the Adventist health style is incredible. In fact, the latest issue of Newsweek, which came out December 15, three days ago, has an article in it talking about how to live longer. And it's fascinating. Uh, when we get to page 51, they say this. They say this. Listen, Seventh-day Adventists. I wish this was true. <laughs> they don't know it's not true. Don't tell them yet, okay? <laughs> but they say, Seventh-day Adventists, as a whole, they, they speak about like it's all of us. They Seventh-day Adventists eat a vegetarian diet. I said, whoa? You mean some? You mean maybe a few when you look around the world? I understand like maybe less than 10% globally. So, Seventh-day Adventists eat a vegetarian diet, don't smoke, and spend a lot of time with family and church groups, which helps reduce stress. That's why they live long. Here they hold, they, the world is holding us up as an example of how to live healthfully. I say, praise God. I wish it were true, but praise God anyway. <laughs> okay. They might, they might have gone to Loma Linda to that small group of centenarians who live healthfully. I met one of them. She was 102 years of age at that point in time, Marge Jeton. And she, she shared what she, she's still pumping iron. She's still cycling. Oh, now she's like 103. Anyway, but so the, we have a message, folks. We are blessed. I want to challenge you. And they, they found out now that vegan diet even helps to remove, notice, remove prostate cancer. This is on ABC. It was on the public news channel in the morning. ABC, Dr. Dean Ornich, showing a study of going to a vegan diet, again, a balanced diet, and how it, it completely removed and eliminated it. But you see, the whole purpose of living healthfully, the majoring in minors is a, the purpose of witnessing. I'll end with a story. I was up at the Redwood Forest. Anybody been up to the Redwoods here in California? Let me see their hands. Oh, half of you. The rest of you, you've missed out something great. Got to go there. Got to go and see it. I was there on a weekend. My wife and I, we were in, in the, amongst the trees on Sabbath afternoon. And as we came out from those huge giants, it's called the giants. As we came out, there, was, there were two couples coming in. And as they came into going into a section on a trail, they said, Oh, by the way, can you tell us how far it is over to such and such a tree? And I, we said, Oh, about 10, 15 minutes walk. They said, Oh, good. I said, By the way, are you from Australia? 
And the ladies who spoke said, Ha, ah, yes, yes, I am. How did you know? I almost could have said, Thy accent betrayeth thee. But I didn't, you know. I kept away from the King James English at that point. I just said, I caught your accent. You know, my wife and I had been to Australia, da-da-da, make a long story short. They said, oh, you've been to our country, yes. And we started a conversation. And I turned to the husband, because these were the two we were interacting with. Now their brother-in-laws and wife were standing on the side, and we were talking. And, the, and they said, wait a minute. What are you doing here this weekend? I said, oh, tomorrow, Sunday, I'm running a race. He said, I am too. You're kidding. You're a runner? Yeah. He said, yeah, my name is Andy. Uh, my name is Deb. Oh, we started talking. And I said, what are you doing? Are you uh, 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 he said, I'm doing the 10K, 6.2 miles. I said, how about you, Ron? I said, I'm doing the half marathon, 13.1 miles. He said, you kid him. This is great. We're both runners. Tell me about your program. What, what do you do? I said, well, for one, I don't run. You what? Yeah, I don't run for exercise. Uh, you're kidding. And that's a whole long story again. You know, I don't, I don't want to mess my knees up. I run the race. It's a top secret, but I tell you some other time. I, I just run the races. I, I train in a different way. And the Lord is blessed with learning to how to be fit and yet run faster in the race without running. Uh, it's like tithing, you know what I mean? The more faithful you are with tithing, do you have more money or less money? More. You, get that. That's right. you see, most people don't understand biblical Adventist logic. So anyway, uh, so I, I, I don't run for exercise, and yet I'm running faster in my races. So the guy listening says, you're kidding. Ah, he said, man, I'm 48. This guy's almost you know, eight years younger. He says, and I've got knee problems. I said, don't run. Don't run. But what about racing? I still, I still run the races. He said, what else do you do? I said, well, I have a different diet. And the wife pops up, up uh, you know, kind of gets into the conversation. She said, diet? Andy will never give up his meat. Don't even waste your time. I said, well, uh, you asked about it? Yes, I follow, I follow Scott Jurek. Who's, oh, of course I know about Scott Jurek. He's a runner. Yeah, yeah. So I talked about Scott Jurek. He said, listen, we'll see you tomorrow at the race. I said, fine. And they went off to look at these massive trees. Sunday morning, I get out of my vehicle. There are about 2,000 people around. About 1,500 who are running two or three races. Guess what? As I get out of the car, guess who walks by? Andy and Deb. It's like, you're kidding. We hadn't planned where to meet. And so Andy immediately says, man, this was meant to be. So I said, hey, let's warm up together. We warmed up together. They took some video and, and pictures. My race started first, the longer race. Then his race started. He was a shorter one. So he finished first. And at the end of the race, he was there taking pictures again. And when it's all over, they came to me and said, hey, hey, listen, man. Because they saw how well I'd done. By the way, I actually set a brand new record for my age group. Broke the previous age group record. So the guys are like, man, tell us more. Tell us more. Why? Fitness for what? Fitness or witness. It caught their attention. It's like, you know. I said, well, they said, tell us more about your diet. And I started telling them about Scott Jurek, the 100-mile races, the 135-mile race to follow. And I said, I follow Scott Jurek's diet. And Deb turned to me and said, whew, thanks. Glad you told us that. We were afraid this vegan thing was some kooky religious idea. <laughs> Ah, Jesus tells us to be wise as serpents and harmless as does. You know what? They went back to Australia. Guess what? Within a week, I got an email from Andy. Hey, Ron, I've ordered a bicycle online because I told him I cycle for exercise. I don't run. He said, I've ordered my bike. It's on its way. And guess what? He says, I have been a vegan now for the last one and a half days. <laughs> 
started, you know, just, just, he had to email me. He had to email me. And, and, and he says, Debbie wants to have the, 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 some recipes. Send some recipes because she's the cook. Guess what I sent them? The 3ABN link to the Mitchell sisters. And then when they get the link, they can go to 3ABN and get the rest of the messages. Fitness for what? Fitness for witness. It's not legalism. It's not majoring in minors. Remember, Peter says, our, our good conduct will draw people to Jesus Christ. We can live healthy, wholesome lives for His glory. How many of you want to do that by His grace? Let me see your hands. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for challenging us to do all, whether we eat or whether we drink or whatsoever we do. May we do it all to your glory in the precious name of our Savior who bought us at a price. May we live as temples of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.